The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. First of all, around 86% of all Ukrainian targets are derived from drones according to the data that I've seen. And that is, that's remarkable, right? Not by aircraft, not by soldiers on the ground, not by forward observation, but by drones. So it's a sheer volume of targets. The second point is, it's the it's the speed of striking, what we call the kill chain, the time from identifying a target to effectively striking it. If you look at, in the first six months of the war, Russian artillery units that didn't have their own drones took around half an hour and were not very accurate. Those that did have their own drones could strike targets within three to five minutes. And more broadly, we're seeing that uh, kill chain time go down to a couple of minutes. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 3rd, 2023. Over the past 18 months, Ukraine has served as the stage for a proxy battle between superpowers, with the invading Russians on one side and a U.S.-led coalition of Western allies backing Ukraine on the other. As such, it is the closest thing we've yet seen to what many military strategists believe will be the defining challenge of the next strategic era, a near-peer conflict between two or more technologically sophisticated major powers. In this way, the conflict has served as a canary in the coal mine for new military trends, tactics, and technologies that may soon be brought to bear against the West, or by it. Last month, Shashank Joshi, the defense editor for The Economist, published a special report in The Economist outlining what lessons military leaders in the West are taking away from the Ukraine conflict as they prepare for their own militaries for the next fight. He joined me on today's episode to talk over his findings and what Ukraine can tell us about the future of war. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 3rd, What Ukraine Tells Us About the Future of War, with Shashank Joshi. So in... In issue of The Economist earlier this month, you released a phenomenal special report that pulls together a lot of threads that I think people who have been watching the war in Ukraine and who think about war and war fighting and the difficult policy and ethical and legal questions that circle around that have kind of hinted at and seen pictures of. And you do this amazing job of knitting them together. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at this project. What made you think that the lessons from Ukraine, the way the Ukraine war is different from other wars we fought recently, warranted this special treatment, and then how you went about investigating it. Uh, hello, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the kind words and for taking the time to read this report, which is seven chapters, 10 pages, and therefore uh, you know, it requires some investment. So I appreciate you taking the time to look into it. I'm struck 
that we have forgotten what big wars are like. And when a big war comes along, everything that we see appears to be new. And so there's some work that has to be done to disentangle what is old, what here would be familiar to a Soviet general in Afghanistan, a Russian general in Chechnya, or even indeed even an Iranian or, or Iraqi officer sitting in, in Basra fighting in the Iran-Iraq war. And what is genuinely novel? What here is bending war in, in different directions, you know, pushing it forwards, changing its character, perhaps in some cases changing its more fundamental nature as well? So, so that's the impetus for this report, to make sense of this, this the biggest war in Europe we have had since 1945, the, the, the biggest war that virtually any Western country has, has fought, you know, in the British case, since, since the, the Falklands, and that doesn't even come close on scale, uh, Desert Storm, which, which of course was a completely different type of conflict. And so that's the, the starting point, you know, what is old and what is new and how do we pick these apart? So tell us a little bit about what, in your mind, makes the Ukraine war so different. Uh, in the United States, at least, we are a country that has spent the last two decades plus at war, uh, almost without stop, uh, except for arguably maybe just the last few months or a year or two. You know, But those wars are fundamentally different. What makes Ukraine different and a better model or teaching point for the future? I think several things, uh, Scott. First of all, it's scale. So if we take Iraq, Afghanistan, and lots of the other post-9-11 campaigns, the number of US service members who died is, I think, around 7,000. Uh, I think there's um, uh, over 8,000 contractors as well. That is a remarkably low casualty rate compared to the sizable wars of the 20th century and compared to Russia-Ukraine. So in in Russia and Ukraine, obviously, casualty numbers are are considerably hazy. But we know, for example, that more than 20,000 Russians died between December 2022 and April of this year alone, most of them around Bakhmut. Uh, We know that uh, even the Ukrainian Armed forces have suffered probably more than 15,000 killed, if you believe uh, leaked US documents and over 100,000 casualties. So the scale of this is completely different. The wars of the last 20 years that the West has waged have been counterinsurgency campaigns. They've been wars of choice politically. Uh, They have had very little impact on the public at home, whether that's in terms of mobilization, conscription, distortion of the economy, uh, or or in the most extreme case, missile attacks on civilian areas. Uh, And so this is not a total war. It's not a total war in the sense of the Second World War in which the, the, the share of defense spending goes into uh, 20, 30% and, and the economy completely transforms and this massive strategic bombing. But it is the closest thing we have had to a total war in the West involving a Western ally in a long time. And I think that's what makes it so distinctive. And so if you are a US officer or indeed a Japanese or Australian or, or Korean officer asking, what is a war with Russia going to look like in the future? Or what might a war of a Taiwan look like? The closest thing you are going to find to yield lessons on uh, the nature of artillery, the nature of reconnaissance, the nature of cyber operations, the closest uh, theater you're going to find for useful lessons is today the, the war in Ukraine. So in your report, 
you have a wonderfully concise synopsis of what I think we most of us think about when we think about modern warfare, what sets modern warfare apart from warfare 20, 30, 40, 100 years ago. And that's the combination of three things, sensors to detect targets, precise munitions to hit them, and networks that connect the two and allow them to interact. Tell us a little bit about how each of these factors is playing out in Ukraine, what it means in terms of the different types of uh, kind of war fighting that is emerging, the different weapons jamming, countermeasures, things like that. What is it that we are seeing the major factors that enter into the war in Ukraine that allow for this more modern warfare model to to play such a more prominent role than it has in other recent conflicts? Uh, yes, and I'll say a word in, in a moment on on what those elements add up to, because I think it adds up to something different to what we thought it might add, add up to. But those three elements are exactly the sort of core of you know what we might in the early 1990s called the revolution in military affairs, or what going further back, the Soviets called the reconnaissance strike complex. Now, the sensors are obvious enough, the things you spot targets with, uh, and that can be things you know that people don't give much thought to. For example, if you take the example of thermal cameras, a thermal camera that is now you know, pretty cheap and easily available, can see at much, much greater distances than the equivalent technology could 20 years ago. And so if you're a soldier hiding in the woods, you are liable to be seen at much greater ranges with much higher fidelity. But I think that the sensor that has been most prominent in Ukraine has been the, the, the reconnaissance satellite, right? We have seen Ukraine make incredible use of, of reconnaissance satellites, including commercial satellite imagery. There is a Finnish company called ISI. I, I went to their headquarters um, a few months ago, and they build uh, synthetic aperture radar satellites, which which effectively can see through clouds, they can see through light foliage. They have been used by Ukraine to detect Russian targets. Now, that is not a capability that would have been available to a country with the size and prosperity of Ukraine 30 years ago, or, or probably even 20 years ago. This is something you know really new and interesting. Now, let's say you have that information and you need to get it to a frontline unit. How do you do that? Well, this is where the communication comes in. And what we're seeing is that thanks in particular to Starlink, the constellation of uh, uh, low Earth orbit satellites put into space by SpaceX, that we're seeing satellite communications at high bandwidth and in very secure ways available to low tactical units that would not have had this 20 years ago, right? You, you You can say US soldiers had satellite communications in the Gulf War. And yes, they did. But this stuff was often confined to headquarters. It was often used for very particular messages, very particular purposes. You could not, as an average you know, soldier on the ground, just pull up your tablet device and stream high definition video from a drone that may be you know, many, many miles away. So that, that, that connectivity is new. And the final piece of the puzzle that you mentioned is, the, is the, what we, you know, we might call you know, the sensors on the one hand, the shooters on the other. So the thing that does the effect, in, in most cases, the thing that does the thing that goes boom. And of course, again, precision weapons are not new. The development of precision weapons in the 70s and 80s you know, spooked the hell out of the Soviet Union. But what we are seeing is the proliferation of cheaper and more numerous precision weapons, in particular loitering munitions, uh, that can strike targets very precisely with all of the uh, intelligence from the sensors we've just discussed, conveyed to them by the networks we've just discussed. Um, and, and again, that stuff available to units 
that previously would not have had it. So, you know, you had tomahawks uh, in the 1980s for the US Army, and these were very precise. These were remarkable things that startled the world in the Gulf War. But now you have incredible levels of precision available to much, much smaller units. And that is new. So you've already hinted that this revolution in military affairs that people anticipated from the arrival of this new precision technology and all of the accoutrement necessarily to make effective use of it at scale hasn't resulted in quite the revolution people expected. You frame it in your report as a different sort of relationship between modern technology and what you describe as mass, which I think is a useful concept to to kind of bring together the combination of large number of forces, large number of tanks, large number of, of weapons, the kind of conventional throw everything at the wall and, and hope that you, know, you, you simply overpower the enemy. You make the case the relationship is much more nuanced and complicated than people expect. It's not a one-to-one trade-off as we may have anticipated a decade or two ago. Dig into that a little bit. What is the trade-off between this technology and mass? How do they relate to each other, at least as we've seen in Ukraine? Do you know, I think the idea in the 90s was that this combination of technologies that we've discussed was going to result in the revolution in military affairs and that Wars would therefore look like Operation Desert Storm, which was America's triumph over Iraq in 1991. Right? This was the idea that you you would you previously you 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 maneuvered your land forces uh, against each other, but now you 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 had maneuver by fires. That is, you didn't need to put these big clunking armies up against each other in a kind of attritional slugfest over trenches or over front lines. You would actually use these. Uh, strikes, these pinpoint strikes using these technologies on, if you like, the kind of sinews of military power, the command posts, the brains, the muscles, you know, the logistics, uh, the ammunition depots being the reserves of energy. And you would, you would, you would, instead of wearing down the enemy, you would paralyze them. You know, the, I think the phrase, the phrase that was in, in common use among military scientists and still is in some degrees was cognitive paralysis or imposing multiple cognitive dilemmas. So it's not that they literally didn't have the bullets and the men to fight on. It's that the command systems, the uh, logistics, all of the things that you need to keep an army in the field, that these would be destroyed or discombobulated to the point where they would be taken out. And you would have a kind of bloodless victory you would have you would have you know the 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 uh, victory by paralysis victory by the maneuver warfare in its most pure sense and i think what we're seeing is that you can have all of these different elements of the revolution in military affairs you can have the sensors you can have the precision munitions you can have wonderful connectivity but the end result can still be something that looks disturbingly like the Iran-Iraq war. That is to say, as anyone who's seen pictures of you know Bakhmut or the battlefields in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine, very muddy, static trenches with slow-moving front lines with huge artillery barrages. And to come back directly to your question, I think the point is this this whole complex of, of, of technologies didn't make mass redundant. You still need the mass because, first of all, you still need huge amounts of munitions to uh, actually fire on the enemy, even if you have incredible levels of intelligence on showing you exactly where they are, you're never going to have enough fancy precision weapons. So you'll still need shells. You'll still need old-fashioned 155 millimeter artillery that we are shipping over in huge volumes from South Korea and other countries to Ukraine. But also that that kind of deep battle, that kind of attempt at paralyzing the enemy, wearing them down, hitting their generals and their headquarters, it ultimately did not make 
the close battle redundant. You still have trenches, you still have minefields, you still have uh, anti-tank squads, you still have armor that has to break through them. And ultimately, that means very high levels of casualties, very high levels of attrition. And even an army that is using the fanciest technology is still going to have need to have big reserves to keep itself in the fight, as we are seeing on both sides of the Russia-Ukraine war, if, if that comparison makes sense. So one of the more fascinating elements about this continued role of mass you hit on at numerous parts in your report, and it's something that I think people who haven't gotten a kind of ground-level view of the fighting in Ukraine may have missed or may not be fully aware of, is the role of fortifications and a kind of modern version of trench warfare that has creeped its way across kind of the front lines and contested areas of the country. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen in this area. Why are fortifications making this sort of comeback? And how do they fit in with the emergence of this modern technology? Why are they an effective countermeasure of sorts to at least certain applications of this modern technology? And where, and where do they fall short? Fortifications are hugely important. And indeed, anyone who, who who was reading the American military scholar Stephen Biddle, who's written some great stuff over the years on the the enduring qualities of you know, what an effective military force is and what it is that makes an effective army, will will understand that the old tactics that were pioneered uh, and tested by the German army, Imperial Army in 1917-1918, that ultimately helped break through the deadlock of the Western Front, although uh, too late for the Germans, uh, is that things like cover and concealment, small unit cohesion, you know, maneuvering uh, uh, in small units, using the terrain to protect you, these are all incredibly important things. And fortifications are, are a critical part of that. Now, you know, the Iraqi army in 1991 had fortifications. It's just that they were very badly done. They didn't, they didn't use them very well. They, 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 they didn't build their berms well. They didn't build their fortifications very effectively. But also America had overwhelming air power and it could, it could effectively destroy uh, or neutralize a large number of those fortifications from the air. The Ukrainian army cannot do that. It doesn't have air superiority. The airspace in Ukraine is highly contested. And more than that, its ground forces have very limited experience in what we call combined arms maneuver. That is, they aren't actually very adept at being able to suppress Russian anti-tank teams uh, who are manning those fortifications or Russian artillery that has those minefields under observation. And so what we see is when an army with limited training and experience goes up against these fortifications, it is slowed down, it is bogged down. And if the adversary gets it right, as the Russian army currently is in some of these cases in southern Ukraine, it's extremely vulnerable to all kinds of firepower, including artillery, including anti-tank firepower, and also uh, a new type of loitering munitions that actually, um, you know, the Iraqi army didn't have to worry about in in the early 1990s. So um, fortifications are nothing new. It's just that we, and I say we here being the US, its allies, you know, I'm sitting here in the UK, so NATO armed forces, we have not had to worry about those for so many years because we have had air supremacy. We've had armies that have uh, practiced combined arms warfare, and we haven't actually had to test our own armed forces under conditions of really serious obstacles. So I suspect that in, in the case of some obstacles, particularly water obstacles, big rivers, and, and the sort of other types of wet gap crossings, that Western armed forces would also be very unpleasantly surprised as to how difficult they would find it to get over those things uh, under conditions, under contested conditions, under fire, in the same way that the Ukrainians are struggling today. 
So fortifications, of course, have a major bearing on the control on the ground, the control of territory, which is kind of the main contested domain in Ukraine, but not the only one. There are at least two other significant domains, air superiority being one you've already mentioned, and of course, the sea, and particularly the Black Sea in the context of Ukraine. Let's talk a little bit about each of those. Let's start with air superiority, because you've already brought that in. How is this new era of modern technology and warfare with all its limits and its potential impacting that air superiority fight? Is the lack of air superiority on either side over Ukraine a product simply of the parity in military, uh, in relative military capabilities? Or is there something about modern technology and the way it's being deployed that makes that superiority harder to accomplish and unlikely uh, to be a reality in future wars the way it has been in Iraq and Afghanistan and prior conflicts? I don't think technology is the critical factor here. I think Russia's failure to achieve air superiority in the first days of the war was, for me, the biggest surprise. And and I I got a lot wrong, but but that's perhaps what I got most wrong, which is that I thought uh, Russia would, 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 would conduct what we call a campaign of suppression of enemy air defenses or destruction of enemy air defenses, seed or deed, and would therefore have free run of the skies, and that that would negate many of Ukraine's opportunities. It would stop Ukraine from moving reinforcements around uh, to, to reinforce different parts of the front. It would allow U- Russia to provide close air support to its forces. Uh, it would allow Russia to effectively reduce Ukrainian uh, cities in the way that they'd done to Aleppo in Syria uh, years ago. And I got all of that wrong, fundamentally because Russia could not tear down the Ukrainian systems. One reason for that was Ukraine's uh, savvy defenses. That is, for example, they changed the uh, operating settings of the air defense system. Systems, uh, you know, knowing, of course, these were Russian-made air defense systems. They understood the Russians would would know how to counter them, and so they took precautions. They moved them very frequently. They moved them very well. They, of course, had some forewarning from their Western allies about when they had to move them, when strikes were incoming, and we should never we should never forget that you know hidden aspect of the of the conflict as well as we draw these lessons. But overall, Russia completely failed, and and that wasn't to do with any fancy tech. Don't forget, the systems that defied Russia and that then began shooting down Russian planes until the Russian Air Force then held back, these were old Soviet and Russian systems. These were things like books. These were things like, you know, Tor M1s. And and I this is why I kind of wince when some people say the war has shown why Russian and Soviet weaponry is a bunch of crap. Uh, it you know to my mind it hasn't shown that at all because you just have to look at Ukraine's use of some of the same weapons to very good effect whether that is um, Soviet designed air defense systems or whether that's Soviet armor or, or other kinds of things so the air defense systems that did that were, were, were nothing fancy they were nothing new in many cases they were systems designed by Soviet uh, Soviet designers of course which includes Ukrainian ones uh, many many decades ago but that having been done, I think the other important factor was that the the institutional organizational factor was that Russia's Air Force was simply lacking in a degree of professionalism, proficiency and expertise that we thought it had. You know, it wasn't able to conduct complex offensive maneuvers. It was very risk averse. Um, You know, we didn't see we didn't see uh, Russian Russia's Russians weren't very comfortable with night missions. They were absolutely abysmal at coordinating operations with ground forces. And, you know, that's, I guess, in hindsight, unsurprising. This was an army like like the Soviet, all Soviet armies, which was really a ground army based uh, less around air power, more about ground-based fires. If 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 NATO 
NATO firepower comes from the air, from attack helicopters, from from you know from 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 bombers, from fighter fight ground attack aircraft. Soviet firepower traditionally came from artillery, and so the, the the air force was a less important part of that. And I think what I got wrong is assuming that what the Russians could achieve in Syria they could scale up and do in Ukraine. And actually, that was that was completely wrong. And in hindsight, uh, from conversations I've had, the clues were also there in Syria in the limitation of some of their operations. The only thing I'll finally say on, 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 on the airspace issue is that this isn't to say that the contest in the air is entirely equal. I still think that Ukraine is still uh, the inferior power. It still, you know, it is not able to conduct as many sorties. It doesn't have as many advantages as the Russians do in the air. And finally, just because we are not seeing significant, a uh, high-tempo, crude aircraft up in the air, doesn't mean we're not seeing huge numbers of drone operations. And the skies are thick with drones, uh, which are ultimately... Uh, have a freedom of maneuver that I think, um, you know, doesn't mean they're surviving. They're being taken down in huge numbers, but they are being used nevertheless in enormous numbers and in very, very important ways. So I want to come back to the drones because that strikes me as a an aspect of this conflict that's very new and interesting. But before we do that, let us let's go to see uh, to cover that third domain that I mentioned, which got special treatment in your report. A really fascinating entry about the naval warfare element, which has its own aspect and applications of drone technology, networked warfare, precision munitions, but in a very different context, in a very different sort of posture. Tell us about the naval experience in Ukraine, which is, I think, a part of this war that actually hasn't gotten as much attention in the general media for people watching it kind of from from a distance, and what we've learned from that experience. The, the naval war is fascinating because nobody talks about it, you know, until we have big set piece events like the sinking of the Moscow last spring. It just isn't very sexy, yet it is truly strategic in, in the truest sense of that word. If the ground battle um, stabilizes or turns into stalemate, or even if Ukraine bursts through and shatters the Russian army, that doesn't automatically mean that the Russian blockade on Ukraine is going to be lifted. And this is, in fact, more important than it has been as we're having this conversation, because, of course, within the last few few weeks, Russia has torn up the grain deal that was brokered by Turkey. It has resumed strikes on Odessa and Ukraine's Danube ports. It has destroyed grain stores. Effectively, it is challenging the economic viability of Ukraine as a state, with not just consequences for Ukraine, but also consequences for the global south and all grain and food importing countries. So it's staggering, therefore, that the war at sea is not given more attention. The situation at the war at sea is essentially that Ukraine has achieved a degree of sea denial near its coast. It has pushed the Black Sea Fleet away, particularly by destroying the Moskova, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, last year. But the Russians are still squatting out there in the Black Sea, able to fire huge numbers of missiles at the Ukrainian uh, uh, landmass. And there's not much the Ukrainians have been able to do about it. But they are trying to find more novel ways to take the fight to the Russian fleet and to the ports that it relies on. The most um, interesting of which, of course, is Ukraine's use of so-called uncrewed surface vessels, USVs, or uh, uh, naval drones, I would call them, although that term tends to provoke howls of outrage from the naval specialists I, I you know when I talk to them but but I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and call them naval drones and you know this is this I think is interesting because it tells us a few things 
it shows you, first of all, how uh, these technologies of uh, robotic vehicles, uncrewed vehicles, um, artificial intelligence in some cases for the purposes of navigation, modern connectivity, because these things need satellite communications to navigate over long distances. You know, they can't just be done by radio signals alone. How all of these things combine to allow a, 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 a relatively weaker country to conduct persistent naval attacks on a much bigger country. And we've seen some successful attacks on Sebastopol last year. Uh, some of them not successful. The Russians have also taken out some of these these USVs, including through the use of booms and kind of barrier defenses at ports, including through the use of uh, large caliber guns on their warships, which have shot some of these out of the water. And I think what's interesting is that we're seeing this technology in its experimental phase, right? It's being used. We're seeing the Ukrainians try and use it to break the Black Sea Fleet. They haven't succeeded yet, which is why I'm very cautious of kind of saying this is transforming naval warfare, this is transforming warfare. Those conclusions kind of have to wait because actually uh, right now, no, the, the traditional warships are sitting there and pretty much able to re be, remain resilient against this Ukrainian onslaught of USVs. But we don't know how the war will evolve. And they're experimenting all the time. They're, they're adapting their tactics all the time. And it's possible that we will see uh, that at some stage, this is able to make Russia's Crimean ports completely unviable if the Ukrainians can find a way to get these drones through in more substantial numbers. But but I think we're going to look back on this in, 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 you know, in 10 years and say, this was where we saw the technology being pioneered in interesting and important ways. In, by the way, the same way you know, we would look back at um, the uh, American, the OSS, and American use of similar naval drones in the Pacific War back in nineteen in the nineteen forties, or the way we'd look at Israel's use of uh, UAVs for reconnaissance and anti radiation, anti radar purposes in the nineteen seventy three war against the Arab states. You know, these techniques are pioneered and experimented over decades in successive conflicts uh, until they really mature and evolve in ways where they proliferate and spread throughout armed forces and, and, and begin to dominate force structures. And I think we're at kind of that early stage still. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed 
my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So we've mentioned now in almost every one of your responses, let's let's spend a concentrated moment talking about what is, in a lot of ways, I think the signature technological move of this conflict and a lot of recent conflicts that are ongoing, and, and that is the emergence of drones, not just at drone technology, which of course has been used 
you know, throughout the last 20 years, but drones kind of at scale with a variety of applications, whether as precision munitions themselves, more or less, or as surveillance and mechanisms, as, you know, coordinated networked kind of efforts to gather large amounts of intelligence at the same time. Uh, you know, how have we seen drones used and what are the dynamics around drones in this form of war fighting where we're seeing them deployed at scale and at a level that is only recently become available as drone production and technology has become affordable enough to be deployed at that sort of scale. What does it mean for the the future of conflict across these different domains and its intersection with more conventional forms of warfare? Drones have been used for pretty much everything. And, and I think the most important point to get across to those who perhaps haven't followed it as closely is that our natural association with drones from the war on terror in, in Iraq, Afghanistan has been strike. Right, it's been it's been the hellfire. It's been the the predator and the reaper taking out a an, an Al Qaeda target. It's been um, you know a, a CIA drone strike in in an undeclared theater of war. Uh, drones as a substitute for ground attack aircraft. I would say that in Ukraine, whilst that has happened, of course, uh, although it's principally happened, I would say, through the use of um, loitering munitions, that is, drones that themselves uh, conduct, you know, smash into the target, a one-way attack munition, as some people might call it. The most important use of drones has been for reconnaissance. And that's, again, you know, that's not, the pedants will say that's not entirely new. And of course, that's true. You know, I mean, you could, I think, go back to the 1970s to look at the use of drones, which conducted reconnaissance, then they would send their film back via parachute. Uh, and in the 80s, they could send their data back via radio if they were in the line, line of sight. But the, 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 what we now have is kind of just a transformation in the volume of drone reconnaissance. Drone rec- reconnaissance by drone is absolutely essential. And what it does is it means several things. First of all, around 86% of all Ukrainian targets are derived from drones, according to the data that I've seen. And that is, that's remarkable, right? Not by aircraft, not by soldiers on the ground, not by forward observation, but by drones. So it's a sheer volume of targets. The second point is it's the, it's the speed of striking, what we call the kill chain, the time from identifying a target to effectively striking it. If you look at in the first six months of the war, Russian artillery units that didn't have their own drones took around half an hour and were not very accurate. Those that did have their own drones could strike targets within three to five minutes. And more broadly, we're seeing that uh, kill chain time go down to a couple of minutes. So, you know, immediately you can see this is becoming a much more, res- this is allowing much more responsive fire. That That's a huge change. The third point I would say is that this is much more precise. Right. So if you think of a a, a artillery piece trying to take out a target that fires near it and then has to be corrected and then moves on to the target and then fires more shells and then slowly brackets its way or triangulates its way to the target, that can take a while and you can spend a lot of shells in that process. Now, if you have fantastic high quality data on the target, you can take it out much more reliably with far fewer shells. So in other words, you have made your kind of uh, firepower much more efficient. Your given stock of shells will go a lot further if you have much higher quality data on the target. And the final thing to say about drones is that it's the stuff that's happening inside them. The way they are processing the data is also changing. And while this is absolutely not universal in Ukraine, this is I'm not implying this every every you know every battalion, every single company has this. We're seeing the increasing use of drones that have AI capability inside them. That instead of just funneling back 
a bunch of video that says, hey, you know, trawl through this video, you might find something interesting. An object recognition algorithm can detect, is this a tank? Is this an armored vehicle? If it is, is it a Russian or a Ukrainian one? What kind is it? Is it a T-72? Is it something else? And what is the exact location? And it can send back that data, not in a 500 megabyte video file or a 20 megabyte image, but in a little bit of data of a few kilobytes, passing on only the essential information in seconds, even if the connection is intermittent, even if there's enemy jamming or, or, or a kind of disruption of the communication feed. And the artillery piece can then act on that much, much more quickly. So that is another transformative aspect of this. Uh, and taken together, all of this means that drones are, you know, although, you know, in a sense, have been part of warfare for 40, 50 years, what we are seeing is these cohere or amalgamate into a much more efficient kind of precision warfare that I think is a qualitative shift from what's come before. Uh, and I'm not saying Ukraine is the only battlefield in which that's occurred. We saw elements of this in, in Nagorno-Karabakh and in other in other contexts. But, but I think it is the most tangible, large-scale application of these technologies we have ever had. So if drones are kind of the model for this new emerging form of technology that is very sensor and network contingent. We've also seen a number of different types of countermeasures emerge to try and foil these efforts, jammers being the one that gets the most attention in your special report efforts to kind of intercept and inter interfere with the network effect that allows these tools to communicate with each other on which some but not all of them rely in other places, you talk about different types of camouflage, some of which work well, some of which don't, that can obscure some of the monitoring, uh, although generally uh, it seems to be ways people are finding ways to overcome it. Tell us about the countermeasure environment um, where uh, this new technology is being developed and primarily, I guess, Russian forces, but really people on both sides are trying to find ways to push back and fight against it. Are we seeing evolutions in countermeasures, some of which more or less effective? And where do we think that trajectory is going to go as this conflict goes on or this type of war fighting continues into other conflicts? Some of the countermeasures are quite prosaic. Uh, the most uh, famous one being, you know, so-called cope cages, little cages placed above armored vehicles that will try and block basic uh, cheap, uh, low-quality low drones. But of course, what I think what you're alluding to is is more sophisticated kinds of countermeasures, in particular, electronic warfare, which is really any kind of activity in the electromagnetic spectrum, whether that's designed at uh, spoofing a signal, uh, disrupting a signal, blocking a signal, all of those kinds of things. And this was a traditional Soviet and then Russian strength. At least that's how we saw it. And we saw some of these capabilities being used in, in in Syria, where the Russians were made very extensive use of jamming um, to the point where it was even disrupting civilian air traffic in the Mediterranean region. This has had an effect on precision weapons. You know, I talked about all, all those three elements, the, the sensors, the, the, the digital networks, and the shooters, uh, all three of them. Electronic warfare can affect each one. To give you an example of that, Ukraine has been using these very uh, advanced artillery shells called Excalibur, which are effectively like artillery shells, but they're GPS guided. And Russia was effectively disrupting the 
the the homing system on these or the navigation system, either the GPS signal or I think more likely the the radar proximity fuse telling them when to explode by turning on these big powerful jammers that that direct uh, radio radio frequency energy at at the target. And these things are also being used to knock drones out of the sky. There's a great statistic from one of the studies uh, published by the Royal United Services Institute, a think tank in London, which said a few months ago that Ukraine was losing 10,000 drones a month. And when I spoke to electronic warfare specialists in Kiev uh, a few months ago, they said to me that a majority of those losses were probably down to electronic warfare. Indeed, a majority of those specifically down to uh, a disruption of the GPS navigation signal that the drones rely on. So they effectively wander away and they crash or they land somewhere you know, where they're not supposed to. So this is, this is a, 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 a part of that phenomenon I described, which is that even in a very high technology war, this kind of thing and means that you end up with very high rates of attrition. You may be using very precise weapons. You may have very advanced technology. But the fact that it's on both sides means that you're going to chew through huge numbers of drones. You're going to lose huge numbers of drones. Um, and we absolutely see that. However, I will say that there was a sense in Western armies that Russian electronic warfare was kind of all powerful. And I would say that hasn't been the case at all. There was a sense that it, they would turn on these jammers and our communications would go black, our radios would stop functioning, our planes would you know drop out of the sky. And just that has not happened, right? It's been tough for Ukraine, but they have been able to keep drones in the sky, even if they've lost lots of them. They have been able to fly missions. They have been able to use precision-guided weapons. In fact, we're seeing U- UK-supplied Storm Shadow cruise missiles destroying a lot of Russian ammunition in the last few weeks alone. And I think the fundamental reason for this is is firstly, because jamming is not cost-free. You turn a big jammer on, it emits a lot of uh, electromagnetic signal that other people can see and that they can then strike, including using anti-radiation missiles. So, you know, nothing in warfare is free. If you, if you, if you, you know, uh, an artillery uh, battalion, you fire, you expose your position. If you're a electronic warfare unit and you, and you turn your jammers on, you expose your position. So, you know, warfare is about hiding and finding and, and electronic warfare, you know, is, is a very conspicuous and visible kind of warfare as well. So that's part of it. The other point is, Russian Russian army, you know, we're familiar with its severe problems by now. And again, we saw that, for example, they're very bad at deconflicting the use of electronic warfare. Uh, in another Rusi report, we saw uh, the information that when one Russian plane had its electronic countermeasures on, which in other words are designed to stop enemy radars from finding it on the ground, they were jamming the uh, self-defense pods of their fellow aircraft in the air. So, Effectively, there was a kind of electronic fratricide. And we saw that again with the fact that when they turned these jammers on in the early part of the war, they were they were jamming their own communication equipment, which was causing them all kinds of problems. And the final point I would say is that more often than not, jamming is is intermittent. It's it's kind of up and down, and there will always be opportunities. But this comes back to my point, uh, Scott Scott, which is that we we mustn't forget the help that Ukraine is getting. And and we have to factor that into the, our assessments of how well they're doing and how they're doing it. And to give you the example of that, on electronic warfare, we are seeing America's uh, American units at that time, 18 Corps, the 18th Airborne Corps, which was the kind of lead unit to support Ukraine from Europe, providing Ukraine with maps of electromagnetic activity. So that's the location of jamming, the frequencies used 32 times a day so that they could plot a path through these jamming areas. And what that tells you is, you know, 
you need to have pretty good capabilities to understand the electromagnetic environment. You need to have people who can use that information. So drone operators who can take the information like that and, and use it. And you have to be mindful of it when you're operating in a big conflict in the way that virtually n- no average American or British or, or, or you know NATO unit on the ground sitting in Helmand or in, in Basra in the last 25 years would really have had to worry about. And I think that that just shows you the kind of mental shift that Western armies are going to have to undertake. They're going to have to think about things they just haven't had to think about for so long. Whether that is aerial attack, you know, we haven't had a US soldier die from fixed wing aircraft since Korea, or whether that is things like, how do I get my drone through enemy jamming? How do I get the information? How do I maneuver it? How do I control it? How do I do it? All of this stuff is stuff we're going to have to think a lot about. So, All of this really gets to another fundamental element of warfighting that you discuss in your piece um, that relates to that mass element, which is still playing a significant role in this conflict, but is intersecting with these emerging technologies in different ways. And that is the question of logistics. It's probably the most fundamental aspect of warfighting and military campaigns that people don't think about, who don't think about these issues uh, on a regular basis, but that can have devastating effects on the battlefield and in the effectiveness of military operations if interrupted. How are we seeing logistics emerge as a strategic question in the conflict in Ukraine in different ways? How is it intersecting with technological questions, some of the new challenges facing this battlefield, and, and in what ways is it still a continuation of some of the old questions military planners have been wrestling with for decades? I think the most important thing is that logistics are going to be on a scale that we haven't had to think about for a while. It was one thing to be able to move large armies to, you know, if you look at Iraq and Afghanistan, I've heard plenty of stories of of, uh, US officers or other officers sitting in their headquarters in Iraq, these huge places, as you probably know well, well, very many listeners probably know extremely well, with, uh, you know, McDonald's, Burger King's, you know, lobster for dinner. And I'm I'm not saying there weren't very great risks attached to these things as well, but there was a level of assuredness of supplies that I think we are seeing is not always guaranteed. And actually, the the clearest illustration of this is on the Russian side, where they had logistics that were very fixed to railways, uh, big forward ammunition depots, that when Ukraine acquired the means of long-range missile attack, principally through HIMARS, American HIMARS launchers with their GPS-guided rockets, that these began going up in smoke. And that that starved the Russians of artillery ammunition, which made a tangible difference to the Ukrainian offenses we saw last summer, particularly in Kharkiv. And and so that shows you, you can have a big army, you can have a very sophisticated army, and and you know it can be one that 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 has huge numbers of weapons. But if it needs to be kept fed, fueled, and armed, including through huge numbers of shells, I think Russia fired about ten million last year. Your ability to move these is vital. But the second point is that the logistics are likely to be contested. I think we've been extremely lucky that Russia simply hasn't had the uh, intelligence capacity and the responsiveness to strike, to detect and strike Western arms supplies going from Poland into Ukraine at scale. If that had happened, I think it would have been a really big challenge for us. But there's a a great paper by Chris Dougherty, formerly of of CNAS, published uh, a couple of months ago saying, look, if you look at the war games about Taiwan, the best way to cripple the American war machine is to target its logistics, is to take out the means of supply, take out its bases, its depots, its its ships, its container vessels, all of the things 
that the American military has come to rely on and has underinvested in over the last 20 years because these things were not under serious threat. But contested logistics is going to be critical. And the final point I'd make is that Ukraine is giving us a hint of the kind of agility you need under circumstances where your logistics may be challenged. So let's take the example of brigades at the front who have a breakdown of of, of a breakdown of, of their kit um, because they're operating this complete zoo of, of Western artillery pieces, for example, that they don't, haven't got the right number of repair kits. They haven't got enough. They haven't got the expertise. There's a wariness over transferring uh, detailed manuals because of intellectual property, all these other things. How do you repair them? Well, Okay, in some cases, you need to repair them near the front lines. You need to use uh, the the logistical equivalent of telemedicine, right? Calling in on a video call to someone in in Stuttgart at European Command, saying, "Here, you know, here's how you have to move this wrench." But what I found most interesting is is Ukraine's use of three D printing. In some cases, they are three D printing spare parts in warehouses right near the front, where a brigade officer may go to this warehouse rather than going to their command up 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 to the chain of command saying you know i need to the general staff saying i need this they just go to this warehouse and saying i need this piece can you make it and obviously you can't do that for everything you're not you're not going to 3d print your way to fixing a completely mangled you know high mars launcher or a or a german leopard tank but it works for small things and i think it's a great example of how units in the field in future wars are likely going to have to be more self-sufficient, whether that is in energy supplies, whether that's in being able to repair things, whether that's in food and fuel. You know, for example, you might need additives that you can use to produce aviation fuel from local supplies rather than having it shipped over in gigantic containers, you know, via the Middle East in the way that you did in Iraq. So this war, I think, should be a wake-up call on the importance of making sure you invest in your logistics, you think about how you're going to resupply your forces, and how you are going to do all of that under conditions in which the enemy is shooting at you and taking out your ports and taking out your ships. NATO is just beginning to rev up its work on this. And as part of the big war plans that they approved at the Vilnius summit in mid-July, logistics was a very unsung but important part of this because we are now having to think about how you move big armies across Europe again and all of the challenges that poses when you're doing it under really intense contested conditions and not up against the Taliban or, or, or you know, a sort of Shia militia in Iraq. So a final aspect of this new era of warfare that you hit at in the report that I think is worth touching on um, before we move on is the impact it has on the very conventional and very important dividing line, at least in legal legal law and ethics of military conflict between war fighters and civilians. Because when you have these decentralized platforms of collecting information, processing, putting it into targeting information, and decentralized array of inputs, civilians are playing a much more prominent role, both civilians in the field, and then we are seeing civilian companies play a role in you know, processing this information, perhaps even doing a lot of the computation that goes into targeting decisions through servers, maybe in the United States or in other locations outside of Ukraine that have a pretty clear nexus to the actual targeting that's taking place. What are we seeing about this new these new questions about civilian involvement? What new questions do they raise? And how big a role is that playing in this conflict? And might it play in future similar conflicts? 
Well, Scott, I know you're a lawyer, so here I tread very carefully and I I will be very happy to stand corrected by you at any point. But what strikes me as interesting is not that civilians are playing a role in war. As you know, they've they've always done that and and, and done it in various ways. And popular resistance has, has been a core part of warfare since antiquity. What's interesting is the mechanisms by which they're doing that, right? And I was really struck by, I was talking to Jack McDonald, who's a uh, an academic at King's College London, and he was pointing out to me, look, when the US invades Afghanistan, and Iraq, the rates of internet penetration are tiny, right? Less than 1% of the local population in Afghanistan in 2001 had access to the internet. Even in Syria in 2011, uh, when the civil war began, there was internet access and mobile phone footage of the combat was was a kind of a, a critical evolution of open source intelligence, but actually only 22% of the population still had internet access. And when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, less than half that population was connected. And that wasn't even that long ago. That was less than 10 years ago. When Russia invaded last year, 80% of the population had access. So what that means is, is, I think, really interesting because it means every civilian is a potential censor right in in to to use the the military terminology at the beginning and, and to use it provocatively every 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 civilian is a censor that's that's i i heard jim hockenhall who's the former head of british defense intelligence use that analogy and he calls it a civilian censor network and that has some huge advantages for militaries they can get images and videos of enemy movements from all over the place but of course it also puts civilians at some risk because if you are a a civilian who is correcting artillery fire on a Russian unit over uh, a, a WhatsApp call or a signal call. You know, as a, as a lawyer, Scott, you know perfectly well that that is going to put your civilian status at risk and you forfeit some of the, you you may forfeit some of the protection that you enjoy as a civilian. So that that digitization the civilianization of the digital battlefield, which is the phrase used by the International Committee of the Red Cross, a humanitarian organization, I think is a dramatic change. Now, there are gray areas. There are lots of gray areas. If you're using an app to convey the general area of Russian troops, but you're not giving specific information that is not being specifically used by, you know, in, 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 in an armed attack, then there are all kinds of legal ambiguities and difficulties. And, and you know, we should be very, very careful in, in avoiding the conclusion that all civilians are targets because of this. That's just not the case. They have to take a direct part in hostilities, as you know, and what that means in practice can be quite, can be quite difficult to disentangle. It also strikes me that there are some more more arm's length civilian activities that we should be thinking about. And I'm thinking here of um, the use of foreign civilian private sector companies. Um, we've talked about SpaceX and the use of uh, Starlink satellites, which are now an integral part of Ukraine's military communication system. But you can also look at um, you know commercial radar satellites providing military intelligence to Ukraine. I, th- I also think of, of servers, right? You have Ukrainian military data sitting on, on servers outside of the country um, that is contributing to Ukraine's armed forces. So what kind of military object is that? Under what circumstances is that a legitimate target? I, I think that that raises great questions. But I do want to end this point just by saying that all of this presupposes that 
an army cares about who is a civilian, who is a combatant, that they, they care about IHL, they care about the laws of armed conflict. You know, obviously, if you're a Ukrainian listening to this, you may roll your eyes and say, well, you know, at the end of the day, the Russian army in Bucha was not consulting legal legal advisors when it decided to massacre civilians in Bucha. Uh, and the Russian army is not an army that is necessarily agonizing over the niceties of these legal points. So uh, we should be aware that these kind of legal debates also have their limits. So we're almost at the end of our time, but let me kind of bring a lot of what we've been talking about down to a, a focus point, a, a kind of conclusory point that gets back to the main theme of the special report that you put together, which is the lessons we take away from this. When I say we, I think I mean American and allied Western militaries, European militaries, Australians, Japanese, that have a similar set of strategic interests and therefore might be looking at a similar set of types of conflicts they might engage in and a similar technological capabilities. You know, they are in a different position than Ukraine and will be in the future. Relatively few of these countries, although not zero, necessarily are likely to face an assault of the type that Ukraine is facing, an invading force. Um, at the same time, they also are unlikely to be invading a neighboring country uh, and seeking to hold territory in the way that Russia is in this case. Uh, again, never say never, but it doesn't seem like it's in the short list of strategic priorities for any of these countries. So, the needs and demands are likely to be a little bit different. And that, in my mind, suggests that they may be taking away slightly different lessons than what are at the top list for the Ukrainians or for the Russians. From your talks with people in these military forces, what are the big lessons? What do they think is most directly communicated to their future experience that they're taking away from watching what's happening in Ukraine? Well, I spoke to a lot of Western armed, uh, Army officers and military officers looking at this, and I was struck by the degree to which they were incorporating lots of these tactical elements into their training. I went to an exercise in Britain on Salisbury Plain where they were trying to replicate the conditions faced by Ukraine, including persistent surveillance from satellites, drones, uh, electronic warfare, and trying to force young young officers to say, how would you deal with that? How would you adapt to that? And of course, these are officers who, you know, the older ones may have experience of, of Iraq, Afghanistan, but, but, but even those wouldn't have had to really think about what is my electronic signature? What am I giving away? What am I emitting? Is there a drone above me? How do I take the drone out without giving away my last, giving away its last known position and raining fire on me? I spoke to General James Rainey, who is the commander of U.S. Army's Futures Command, which is designed to kind of think about the U.S. Army, I think, right into the 2040s, in fact. And, you know, his point was that that this really reinforces how we need to fight. He talked about the need for constant movement, and he said that's going to have all kinds of knock-on effects on troops on the ground. You know, what is the effect of humans when you're operating at that tempo of having to constantly move because you're afraid of a drone spotting you and striking you? Uh, and he said, look, you know, an attack that might once have required a three to one numerical advantage over the enemy, that might now need a nine to one advantage because soldiers are not going to have time to rest. So the tempo of activity is going to go uh, up and up and up. I think there's also a sense that we're going to have to learn from some of the the, what's proven most useful to the Ukrainians. You know, I spoke to the French head of the armed forces, General Thierry Bocard, and he said, look at Starlink. We need something like that. We need these, this kind of ubiquitous connectivity, and we don't have it right now. So how are, we going to, how are we going to replicate that? How are we going to get satellites up in the sky and get that to forces? And I think people are looking at, at, at you know, there, there are some, some 
nooks and crannies of Western armed forces that may have been ahead of the curve on this, of taking into account an environment in which they would have to fight in a more dispersed way, uh, spreading out over a wider area, pushing precision weapons down to lower levels. And I think the, the great example is the US Marine Corps, which under the last four or five years has been really radically transforming itself. It's been getting rid of its tanks, getting rid of its heavy armor, and it's been um, reconstituting into a force that would get into the first island chain in the Western Pacific inside the so-called weapons engagement zone of Chinese missiles, uh, dispersing in small groups, spreading out, conducting you know, anti-ship using anti-ship missiles to take out Chinese ships, providing intelligence back to US forces in the rear, and pushing loitering munitions and other precision weapons right down to really, really small units, down to squads of 13 people, as little as that. Um, so I, I think I think, you know, the big lessons are picking up are all these tactical lessons about the different way in which they're going to have to fight. But having said that, I'll just say one thing, which is that this war is not over. And as we speak, uh, Scott, the Ukrainians are still mounting an extremely difficult offensive against well-prepared positions that involve fortifications, minefields, um, you know, uh, uh, pillboxes, trenches, ditches, all these other things. And they are struggling. They are absolutely struggling, in part because of the lack of air power, but also because this kind of complex combined arms warfare is very difficult. And if it proves that modern surveillance technologies, modern loitering munitions, um, and all of these other things make it extremely difficult for an attacking force to break through, then I think armies are going to take some interesting lessons from that. But if Ukraine can suppress Russian uh, fire and it can um, it can move through these minefields and move through these defenses and break through and use precision weapons to slowly erode the basis of Russian combat power by taking out ammunition, by taking out command posts and all these other things, that's that's a different lesson that's going to be taken. So I think the most important thing is to be open-minded. There is a reason why you know, the, in the UK case, we don't call these lessons. You know, The, the UK British Army calls these insights because a lesson, they say, is something that you have identified, you have incorporated, and you have learned from by changing your own practice and changing your own behavior or purchases or force structure. And it's a little bit early to say that we have actually learned anything from this yet. That is going to take a little bit of time to conclude. Well, we are unfortunately out of time for today, but I have no doubt we will have opportunities to revisit this set of issues in the future and, and may yet try and lure you back on the podcast to do so. Until then, though, Shashank Joshi, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our written extensive coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.